step. Right. What we can expect on the horizon. But I, I, it's interesting for me the last couple of weeks that I had more conversations with people that I've never had conversations with about the Supreme Court decision. And, uh, and I just want to remind us of something that uh, the LGBT agenda is not the only thing that God calls an abomination. It, it is uh, almost shocking to me how the church is so focused on this, and yet there are so many things that God says are, are the sins, even, and homosexuality is included in that, including fornication and adultery, lying. Uh, God finds those in the same category as he does who practice homosexuality. So we need to be mindful. In fact, in Proverbs, this is what it says. There are six things the Lord hates. Seven things that are an abomination to him. He says a proud look, um, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift to run into evil, uh, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who, dis- who uh, brings discord among the brethren. So we need to understand that there's a whole lot more when it comes to sin and what God uh, deems to be uh, unacceptable by him than just this uh, issue that uh, this recent Supreme Court decision has brought before us. So I want us to understand that uh, what has happened is not a bad thing. Now, it is an opportunity for us to stand for righteousness. It's an opportunity for us to have conversations we would not normally have. The uh, manager of the restaurant next door who manages a whole bunch of restaurants took us aside last Sunday when we were leaving and he says, can I sit down and talk with you because I just need to know how to, how to navigate this in my life. And uh, so Jan and I are going to sit down and have lunch with Phil and just kind of walking through scripture and walking through how we walk out love. Because that's the key to everything. How do we walk out love? But we need to understand in the midst of this time of what's going on, as we stand for love, and let's make it very clear, our job is not to stand against. Our job is to stand for. God didn't call us to be the Westboro Baptist Church, you know, to carry signs in public and, and you know, say all of these things against homosexuals, against veterans of war. He didn't call us to be against anything. God called us to be disciples. God sent us out to go make disciples. We have the great command, we have the great commission. The great commandment is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, strength, soul, and might, to love our neighbor as ourself, and, and the great commission is to go and make disciples. So we're called to go and do things for God, not to stand up and resist things that are happening in culture, um, because here's what happens. If we walk in love, we resist. We resist evil when we walk in love. There's nothing that is more powerful than the love of God when it comes to confronting sin. You don't have to point to a person's sin. What you have to do is love them. Because it's interesting, this 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 phrase that you hear over and over again, you know, we, we uh, love the sinner, we hate the sin. That's very true, but I only ever hear that said in the context of homosexuality. I don't hear that said in, when it comes to fornication. Two, two young people living together, we're not saying, hey, we love the sinners, but we hate the sin. Somebody who lies all the time, we don't say we love the sinner, but we hate the sin. But, but So we need to understand, sin is sin, and God has his justice system to deal with sin. Our responsibility is how are we going to stand, because the more we stand in love, the more we stand in love, the more we're going to be resisted. Because Jesus was love, and how did they resist him? 
You know, they didn't know how to handle Jesus, so let's just kill him and shut him up. How did that work for them? You know, it should be the same thing for us because love never, ever, ever fails. That's what the Bible says. It believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. When you read 1 Corinthians 13, it also says, though, that we're to speak love in the face of sin. If we love somebody, we will address the sin in their life, but we address it through love. And so we need as we begin to address sin in people's lives, I would expect us to be just as, I mean, God hates divorce. We can have conversations forever in the church about divorce. You know, God said the only reason I even gave a certificate of divorce is because of the hardness of the heart of man. You know, it wasn't in his plan. Now, understand, he hates divorce. He doesn't hate the people who are divorced. He hates the whole issue of divorce. Because our relationship with God is based upon a bridal paradigm. Jesus is the bridegroom, and we're the bride. Eternity in the relationship with God is based upon a wedding. So the marriage is, is this reflection of, of God's love, Jesus' love, and the church's love back to him. So we need to understand that the more we speak out, if we speak out against, okay, the, the, whole, the whole thing about homosexuality is this. People finding their identity in their sexuality. Well, I know a lot of young people have a lot of discussions who think, you know, when nowadays going to bed with somebody used to be like holding hands when I dated. You know, it took you forever to get up the courage to hold hands. Now it's, are we going to go to bed this day or next day? You know, it's just that's the way it's become. But the church doesn't say anything. And the reason the church doesn't say anything is because it's in the church. It's hard to point fingers at somebody who's living in a moral life when you're living in a moral life. And so we just stay quiet about it. So we have to walk in holiness. We have to walk in righteousness. If we're going to be a voice against that which is contradictory to, to Scripture, then we need to make sure that we are walking in the life. Not to say that we don't sin, and not to say that we don't stumble along the way. But we need to know that when we stand for biblical truth, we will eventually be slandered. When you simply say no, you know, right now, I mean, I've... Probably the, uh, the the loudest voice as far as what we call hermeneutics. A young man who believes he is fully saved and fully gay. Um, he's kind of the voice for the Christian gay community. His name is Matthew Vine. Uh, he's young in his 20s. But all of his arguments, first of all, he talks any verse in Scripture that, that speaks about how God views homosexuality. He calls them clobber verses. And talks about how he's using his weapons to beat him over the head. But what he does is he translates Scripture through the experience of his life. And the Bible tells us the way we interpret Scripture is through Scripture. And uh, so we, we just need to know that the Bible is the Bible. We were, not, we were never called to translate Scripture through culture. We were never called to translate Scripture through our life experience and through our points of view. We're always called to, to translate Scripture. If you go to Bible school, the first thing I'm going to teach you is the Bible is the Word of God, and you interpret the Bible with the Bible. The Bible never contradicts itself. And so we need to know that as we stand biblically, and you can't just use a verse because it says, the Bible says don't do this. We need to approach it in love, and we need to know why the Bible says don't do it, and we need to be assured to know in confidence that when we speak the Word of God, there is power and authority when we speak, but as we do that, we're going to get slandered. And uh, it's interesting. Most of the verses in our message today were spoken by Jesus. So it's not Paul giving us his attitude. It's Paul, Peter, and Jesus the guys there telling us what's going to happen, but Jesus talked about it the most. And but Peter says, keep a good conscience, conscience by responding rightly, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, 
those who revile your good behavior will be put to shame. So first of all, Peter says, look, when people speak against you because you stand for righteousness, you're not to be sucked into a wrong response and sucked into an argument or debate. We are to live out love through the way we, we live our life. And so the right perspective is respond rightly when somebody's talking negatively about us with regard to our godly stance, how we stand for Scripture. Not to be fearful or anxious because somebody is going to say something against us. Because those who seek to be faithful to the values and message set forth by God will be persecuted. Jesus said it over and over and over. And so we need to know we are in a day, and if you watch what's going on in the world, we're in a day when we stand for righteousness, we stand for what the Bible says, and if you don't know what the Bible says, then I would suggest you pick up your Bible and begin to read it and find out what it says. You know, we talk about it enough here to where you should have a good feel for what the Bible says, because that's all we teach is the Bible. But we're going to be mistreated for our stance for righteousness, and it's going to get worse. The, the, the longer it goes, righteousness is going to be seen, by, used by the world, as hate. Those who speak love are going to be called hate mongers. Love language is going to be called hate language. Morality is going to be called judgment. And that's where we enter into relativism. Relativism says, whatever you deem something to be, that's what it is. So if you deem... Um, premarital sex to be acceptable, then it's acceptable because your point of view says it is. So, and you can just follow that train all the way down. Uh, because, I mean, already, you see it on the news, there are people who want to marry their animals. There was a guy, there's a guy in New York who says, look, if, um, if, if loving someone of the same sex um, is acceptable in my right of the Constitution, then I should be able to love children the way I love and so already pedophilia is be, being pushed to be accepted as well. That's, that's where that road leads, and that's what's coming. And so are we going to be quiet, or are we going to speak out? And what we have to determine how we speak out, are we going to be the Western Hill Baptist Church, or are we going to be the body of Christ who speaks in love, who stands for truth? And if you want to see how that works, just read the book of Acts. Because those guys were persecuted unto death. Just read how they spoke in love. Read the testimony of Stephen as he stands before his accusers just before they stone him. Read how he confronts them in love. Read the testimonies over and over of those who were persecuted in the early church and how they stood, how they were put in prison and said, if you preach again, we're going to stone you. And as soon as they got out of prison, they went and preached again. And whenever they preached, they didn't preach against the government. They didn't preach against Rome. They didn't preach against the Sadducees and Pharisees, unless the Sadducees and Pharisees were there challenging them to their face and they had to speak back. And when they spoke back, they spoke in love. So we need to know that we're going to be persecuted. This is what Paul says when he writes to Timothy. He said, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Okay, you know what the word will means? Will doesn't mean maybe, doesn't mean might, doesn't mean possibly, it means you will. So if we're going to stand for righteousness, the more relativism moves in, the more sin becomes acceptable and is considered to be normal, the more we stand for righteousness, the more we will be persecuted. It's what the Bible says. This isn't according to Rick. This is according to the Bible. Peter says this, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. He says, 
Get a clue. Don't think this is really weird because somebody's coming against you because you stand for righteousness. He says, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. That when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. For the spirit of the glory of the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So he says, you know, Peter says, if you are reproached, in other words, if, if people speak evil against you for the sake of the gospel, then we're to rejoice in that. Jesus taught it more than anybody. Jesus taught that God's people will be mistreated, even hated, for standing for godly values. Here's what he says in Matthew 24, which, um, you know, people see Jesus as the Son of God, a great teacher. Matthew 24, Jesus is prophesying. So if you want to understand Jesus the prophet, read Matthew 24, and read how he talks about what the day of his return will look like. And he says this, prophetically, he says, many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another, and he was talking in that context about the church. He was talking about the body of Christ. So there's going to come a day and an hour in the body of Christ when those who stand for righteousness, there will be other voices in the church that say that no longer stands because that's old school. We need to reinterpret scripture according to culture today. In fact, I heard somebody this week who um, you know, is, is a voice in the church. And he said that if the Bible was written today, it would read differently than it was written in the past. And so what they were saying was, the Bible was written through culture and not inspired by the Holy Spirit. So if the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit, let me give you this assurance to know that if the Bible was written today, it would be the same Bible. Same sins would be the same sins. God would have the same justice, the same mercy, but he'd still have the same judgment. Sin is sin, and that hasn't changed. Culture doesn't change. Sin changes culture. Culture does not change God's point of view. God had it all worked out back then. It's still all worked out now. So Jesus said that there are some believers, and unbelievers both, are going to be mistreated, and they will feel like they're being mistreated because somebody stands for righteousness. So in other words, if there are people who begin to embrace things that the Bible says are wrong, and we confront them, they're going to feel mistreated and abused because we are misinterpreting Scripture. We are holding them to a standard that is contrary to our culture, and therefore we're treating them, and they will break off relationships. They won't want to be a part of the church anymore. They won't be part of community anymore. So Jesus declared that his people would be hated by those who don't embrace what he values. Now this is Jesus speaking in John 15. He says, if you were of the world, the world would love itself. So he's saying, look, if you're a worldly person, then you need to know the world really likes you. In fact, the world loves you. The world's going to pat you on the back and cheer for you. He says, yet, because you're not of the world... But I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you? A servant is not greater than his master. So if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. So the world loves its own, but speaks of those who value what they value. The LGBT agenda, the world loves that because it's, it's not, we need to understand, it's not just about sensuality. It's about a worldview that is taking people and putting them in classifications and classifying them 
as because of their actions and orientation, they're classifying them as a people group which cannot be discriminated against. So it's and, and so what they'll do is once that door is open, they can classify any group they want as a minority, and therefore they, if you do anything or speak anything against them, you're violating law, you're speaking hate speech, and the next thing will happen is they will begin to take away the rights and the privileges of those who stand for righteousness because we are not honoring their interpretation of what peace and happiness is. So even family members, it says, are going to betray each other. Now this is Jesus talking. This isn't, this isn't me. Jesus says in Matthew 10, brother will betray brother to death and father his child and children rise up against parents. You will be hated by all because of my name. I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be those of his own household. And this is not because God wanted to come and cause disunity in the family. What he's saying this, in the midst of of the family group, the family model, there will be those who stand for righteousness, and those who stand for unrighteousness will no longer want to have fellowship with them. I know in this room, I know families that are divided, you know, because of their point of view on many different things, spiritually and culturally. And Jesus says, if you're going to stand for me, then you've got to decide, is it me or is it your family? And if you're going to follow the family values, our families always believe this way, our families always done it this way, as opposed to what Scripture says, then you're going to be okay. But Jesus says, if you stand for me, those in your family who refuse to stand for me are going to hate you. They're going to break off fellowship with you. They're not going to have a relationship anymore, not because they don't love you, because they hate me. And because you stand for me, you stand for my righteousness, how they feel toward me, they're going to exercise toward you because you love me. So we need to understand that righteousness has a price. It says, so the result of standing is that both sides are going to feel betrayed. So we need to understand this, that those who reject us are going to be like we're rejecting God. In their mind, they're going to believe, well, look, they are so self-righteous and so judgmental, they're rejecting when the truth of the matter is they're rejecting Christ, but that's how deception works. Deception makes you believe something that isn't true and then embrace it as true. And so those who reject the gospel, those who reject Jesus, truly do believe they're right. You know, and but because they've been deceived, what they believe to be right, even though it's wrong, they will walk in that even unto death, some of them. So Jesus and Paul both knew that standing for what Jesus says and the values that Jesus teaches is going to lead to a temporary division. When I say temporary, I'm talking about in this world, on this earth. This is Jesus talking again. Do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division. For from now on, five in one house will be divided. Father will be against his son, and the son against his father. Mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. So this is what happens when you stand for righteousness. Paul says in writes in the Church of Corinth, says, For there must also be factions, divisions among you, that those who are approved, who genuinely stand for what is true, may be recognized among you. You understand what they're saying? That if you're going to stand for righteousness, there has to be division. Because it's actually the division 
that it's going to make people understand or mindful if you're standing for something different than they do. So we need to fully understand that if we're going to stand for righteousness, if we're going to stand for what the Bible says, if we truly are going to be followers of Christ, that there's going to be divisions and factions in our household, um, in our community, you know, where you grow up, where you live, where you go to school. Look, at even at Azusa Pacific University, a Christian college, Christian college, there's great division factions on the campus, all the way down to um, the LGBT community, having their own club, having their own voice, feeling like they're being rejected, they're being judged, they're being stood against by Christians, and, and therefore they need a voice, and they have their own wall, or they post their own notes, and make their own decrees. See, Jesus says that has to happen. I didn't come to bring peace, I came to bring division. Because it's out of division that people are going to have to see right and wrong, righteousness and unrighteousness, justice and injustice. And it's only through the cross and only through Jesus that that division takes place where people have to make a choice. And so this whole, you know, this whole peace movement, let there be peace on earth and let it begin with me, or John Lennon's Imagine, you know, you know, whatever you want to imagine. imagine the atheist anthem. Yeah. You know. That's the, that, that is the enemy's scheme and ploy to make us believe that we can live a life without division. And yet that contradicts what Jesus said. You tell people, well, Jesus didn't come to bring peace. You know, he came to bring division. You say that to people, go, what kind of God is that? Well, he came to bring division so that you could be mindful and reminded to know that you're not walking in love. That there is a better way. That you can be set free from your bondages and your condemnations and all the guilt and shame that you carry. There has to be a division there for you to see the difference when you've gone into it. So Jesus made it really clear. So the question then becomes, how do we respond to those who slander us? How do we respond to those that call us hate mongers? Which is being thrown out there right now. And can I just say this for the most part? I think the church is way overreacting to the wrong side on this issue. I think there's a lot in the church who I believe are good, righteous people. While they would never carry the Westboro sign in public, they're carrying it in their heart. That they have that judgmental, that, that somehow this one issue has become the sin of all sins. And, and uh, we just cannot let it go any further. Where were they when Roe versus Wade was passed? Where were they when prayer was taken out of school? So we need to understand that we're just standing for righteousness all the time. And righteousness always prevails when it's done in love. So how do we respond? The first thing we have to do is we have to respond out of love. Period. Jesus set loving one another in context to be hated for his sake. This is what Jesus says. I command you. Do you understand what command means? Now, he's not asking. He's not suggesting. Jesus is commanding. A command... Let's say you're in the military. A command is not debatable. If you're in the military and your superior commands you to do something, you don't have the right to say, can we talk about this for a moment? <laughs> Give me 50 push-ups. Well, can, can we compromise here? Can, you, can we make it 25? No, when you're commanded in the military and you're under authority, you have there is no right to debate. And so Jesus says right here, I command you that you love one another. He says, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you, as it is written, they hated me without a cause. 
So Jesus says, look, they hated me for no reason. So if they hated me for no reason, they're certainly going to find a reason to hate you because you're following me. So he said, that's the way it's going to be. So I command you that as they hate you, as they point fingers at you, whatever it is they do, my command to you is this, love them. Period. Jesus commands us to love, to help accomplish his command. He knew that if we practice love, then feelings of love would follow us, but he also said that if we waited to be motivated by affections for people, it wasn't going to happen. You know, if you wait to like somebody before you love them, it may be quite a while before you love them. Um, there are specifically, there are a couple of people in my life that I really have to go before the Lord and say, I don't like them. How do I love them? How do I love someone who is so vehemently opposed to you? How do I love someone who walked in righteousness and then turned their back on you, embraced their own form of righteousness, and now stands and says, look at me, I'm walking with God. How do I love them? And Jesus says, you just do. You love them the way I do. You pray for them. You lay down your life for them. So there's, there's five opportunities I want to talk about today. Two of them are right now. Number one, in the midst of this crisis, in the midst of slander, in the midst of those rejecting us, we have a great opportunity to be loving. We need to look for ways to personally affirm our faith in the wake of the Supreme Court decision. So first of all, we can't look at this as an opportunity to reject. We need to look at this as an opportunity to love. Secondly, we have the chance to be good neighbors. We use this decision as a springboard for conversation with people around us. This is a way to build a relationship with those who may not share our beliefs or worldview. You remember when Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself? And the disciple says, oh, Mr. Jesus, I have a question. Who's my neighbor? And who did Jesus pick? Your enemy. He says, let me tell you a story about a good Samaritan. And they said, wait a minute, there are no good Samaritans. How can you tell us a story about a good Samaritan? Let me tell you his story. And Jesus, in Jesus' story, the guy who would be them is the one who's beaten on the side of the road. The guy who comes along and helps them is the one who they would consider to be their enemy. In fact, he even puts this tension because it's not just the good Samaritan that helps. It's the rabbi, the spiritual man who doesn't help thinking that they would think, well, the rabbi is my neighbor. The Samaritan is not. In Jesus' parable, he's showing them that the one you think is your neighbor is not your neighbor, and the one you don't think your neighbor is your neighbor. And so we have an opportunity to be good neighbors. Can I tell you right now, the most of the gay community does not think you're their neighbor. Most gays think that we hate them. That uh, we want to condemn them. And uh, the only way we overcome that is we have to have that love. We have to sit down with them and have conversation. We have to show them the love of Christ. We can't keep a distance going, oh no, there's one of them. I'm going to walk out of my way to not have to talk to them. They may not embrace. I've, I've, the, the, the gay people that I've had relationship with and communication with um, are people that have power and authority. I'm not talking about just, I'm talking about people who, um, one was uh, the head of the school district. Um, an, 
Another one is an attorney who uh, is on a school board, uh, has a lot of power. And I sat down, and, and the head of the school board, um, I'd asked somebody, I'd asked his assistant, I said, there, there are students who are making slurs toward this superintendent of schools. I said, are the, are the slurs true? Not that it matters. They shouldn't be saying it, but, you know, I didn't, I've heard it more than once. And, and the assistant said, I don't know. About two weeks later, I got a call from the superintendent that says, I want to take you to lunch. So we sat down, we had a conversation. And he said, yes, I am gay. Um, he said, I've been with my partner now 25 years. We have two sons who uh, are in elementary school, both well-educated men. He said, two years ago, we both gave our heart to Christ. And he said, we were um, actively involved in a church. And uh, then somebody pointed out to the pastor that uh, we lived together and two adopted children, you know. And so the pastor said that if we were going to practice, you know, uh, a gay lifestyle, we could no longer be in leadership in service of the church. And he said, we're really wounded and we think the church is, is wrong. And I said, well, let's sit down with what the Bible says. So we had these conversations, and finally I said, it's going to boil down to this. Who do you love more? Do you love Jesus more, or do you love your partner more? I said, I know the two of you own a house together. You've been here all these years. You're raising these two boys. I'm not saying that you sell the house and both go your separate ways. One takes one boy, one takes the other. But I said, are, are you willing to live celibate? Are you willing to live in, in two different rooms and be accountable and, 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 and walk through that restoration because I think if you did that, I think the church would walk you through that, and the church would be blessed by the ministry and the giftings you two have. He called me two days later and said, I can't do that. And they left the church. And he resigned his position as superintendent of schools because it became, not because of me, but others had begun to talk about his, his life that he kept a secret for so long. There was somebody who had an opportunity, and so we need to sit down a lot. Now, we're still friends. He doesn't think I judge him. He doesn't think I was judgmental toward him. You know, I loved him. I said, look, you know, you're a good guy, but this is what the Bible says. We, we can't find a way around the Bible. So this is the way I think we can work it out. And the bottom line is he decided he didn't love Jesus as much as he loved life with his partner. And, and the sad part was me was that when he resigned, he moved to another state. So we didn't have time to have more conversations one-on-one. And... Uh, but, but we need to be having those conversations. We can't run away from it. But we need to stand in love. And we can't, quite frankly, we can't use the Bible as a weapon. You know, we need, we need to use love as healing, as a balm that will bring healing. Yeah, we have to say what Scripture says. The bottom line is that, that nobody is doubting, you know, what we, we think the Bible says. What they're doubting do we love them? I'll just tell you one more story. Last Sunday after uh, after service and evening, there's a there's a young couple that Jan and I are mentoring. They're not part of our they're part of ASOP, but they're really not part of the church. And uh, they want to get married, and so they had gone to a uh, a retreat the week before that was for married couples, um, engaged couples, dating couples, gay couples, and divorced couples. As soon as she said gay couples, I said, "What?" Are And then she told me that this organization is run by uh, everybody's Christians, the believers, but they learned along the way that they said this is going to be a Christian retreat, and we're going to teach you Christian values on how to save your marriage and how to communicate and how to walk in freedom. 
those that we want to walk in freedom aren't going to come. So what they do is they fast together, they pray together, they ask the Holy Spirit how to direct the conference, and they speak everything according to Scripture. They just don't ever see Jesus. Um, so this this girl Rebecca, you you end up getting paired off with with a what they call I forget what they call the partner, but it's where you just pour your life out and you hold each other accountable and you just begin to talk about how you got where you got. And what your thing is, and so she was paired up with one of the gay girls, and uh, her partner was there. They had been separated, been together for nineteen years. Anyway, a long story short, about three days into it. Um, girl kept saying to Rebecca, why are you so loving? Just, why, why are you so loving to me? How, how are you so understanding? And then Rebecca said, well, it's just because I'm a Christian. And uh, then the rest of the week, the girl kept saying, you need to be a preacher. You need to preach about love. But anyway, by the time Rebecca walked her through this and, and, and says, can I pray for you? The girl began to let her pray for her at this non-Christian conference. By the end of the week, she realized she was where she was because of her relationship and her abuse by her father. She realized that she had accepted that lifestyle because she put all men in the same category as her father. She ended her relationship for 19 years. And now she and Rebecca are friends talking on the phone. She wants Rebecca to walk her through here. Now, Rebecca didn't say at the beginning, let's just make things clear. You're gay, I'm a Christian. We have different views, so let's just make it clear up front that we're not going to Rebecca was not hesitant to hug her, to love her, to, to, to hear her story, and to be compassionate toward her. See, we, if we will open ourselves up to those conversations, if we're willing to have those conversations, then we're going to see the power of love. And, and some may change and some may not change. It's not our job to change them. It's our job to love them. It's the job of the Holy Spirit to move their hearts to live however they're going to live. So, you know, so we're to love. The second thing we're to do is we're to bless and rejoice. These are both Jesus speaking. He says, blessed are you when men revile you, persecute you, say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. I just love the fact he doesn't say be glad. He says, be exceedingly glad. For great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then in Luke 6, which is also the Sermon on the Mount, Luke's view of it, quoting the same thing, he says, but when men hate you, and when they exclude you, and when they revile you, you're blessed. So Jesus blesses anyone who endures persecution. So we need to be able to stand for righteousness. And he tells us, you know, we need to test our heart before we're resisted by people. In other words, if, if, if we think, I'm such a nice person, how could somebody not like me? I'm talking to you over here. No. Um, how could they say I'm intimidated? Um, I mean, how, how could people not like me? I'm such a nice person. Then you sit down and talk, and next thing you know, they're telling me everything they don't like about you, and you go, wait. So, no, we need to understand, first of all, as we go in, that when we stand for righteousness, that, that people are going to reject us. But there are three blessings that come when you and I stand. Jesus says, number one, first of all, it says persecution produces perseverance, which produces godly character. So, in other words, persecution is a good thing. Because it does something in our heart. This is how Paul says it when he's writing to the Romans, the Roman believers. He says that not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. 
Why? Because we know that tribulation produces perseverance. And we know that perseverance produces character, and we know that character brings hope. Now, hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, who was given to us. So if we want to walk in hope, the more we're, the more we're persecuted, the more we press in and persevere, the more our character changes, we have a godly character, and the more godly our character, the more hope we have. And the Bible says Jesus Christ is the hope of glory. And we're called, I mean, the reason we walk how we walk is not only do we by faith accept the work of the cross, but we have hope. What is our hope? Eternal life. Our hope is that we are not going to be separated from God, but we're eternally joined to God. And so the spirit of glory rests upon those who are being persecuted. Peter says this, if you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. For the spirit of glory of God rests upon you. Paul says that we have eternal rewards. Again, writing to the Romans, he says, If children then heirs, heirs of God, join heirs with Christ Jesus, if indeed we suffer with him. Now, it always amazes me how people quote scripture. People quote this verse, he says, Well, we're joint heirs with Christ. We're heirs of Christ Jesus. What else does the verse say? Yes, we're joint heirs with Christ Jesus if we suffer with him. See? If we're going to inherit what Jesus inherited, then we have to walk through what he's walked through. And what we walked through was being persecuted for the sake of the Father, being persecuted for the sake of the gospel. So we need to know. So in the midst of that, we have the opportunity to be good Samaritans, which I talked about when I talked about being good neighbors, that we should move toward the LGBT community with mercy and gentleness of Christ. We should seek to be binders and wounds. The story I talked about with Rebecca, she was able to take this lady to the place where she is wounded by her father. And by the love of Jesus, has been beginning to walk her through how to deal with her wounds. In fact, what she, understood, what she realized was this. The girl that was her partner was exactly like her father. And she made excuses when she was explaining that, but my dad, you know, he had to be this way because. And then as she began to talk about how her partner abuses her, she says, well, she has to be this way because. And Rebecca was able to point out, do you understand you're saying the same thing about her as you say about your father? And you know your woundedness came from your father, so every day you're wounded, you're reminded by the wounding of your fathers. So if you want to walk in freedom from the wounding of your father, you need to walk in freedom from what you've embraced to be normal and stop making excuses for it and find out how to be delivered from it and set free. So you had to have a conversation. You had to say that in love. In order, in order to bind wounds... They have to be aware that there are wounds. And so we need to walk in that. So we have the opportunity to be good Samaritans. We also need to entrust ourselves to God. So we endure mistreatment by knowing that God's going to vindicate us. Again, he'll do it in his time when we commit the, the conflict and mistreatment to him. In other words, there are going to be people who are just going to say bad things about us, who aren't going to be our friends, who are going to slander us, who are going to say all kinds of things about us. And see, Peter says, when he, Jesus, was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he committed himself to him who judges righteously. So when we entrust the situation of him by trusting his leadership and answer in his way and his timing. So we have the opportunity to show how big God is. 
there will be a community going on. Everybody's going to go take care of the one. So we have a community going after the one. So just, just to note, too, that last week's recording, because that was going on with the door open, that was louder than me talking on the tape last week. So, it's, uh, so we're trying to fix that. So, deliverance. So, um, here's the opportunity. We have the opportunity to show how big God really is. Now, let me say this. We can't paint a picture of a God who is hopelessly on the ropes. In other words, God is all-powerful. God is all-knowing. God is able to withstand the slightest change. We don't have to make an excuse for God. We don't have to somehow think, oh, God, how did, how did you let this happen? He didn't let this happen. We did it ourselves. So we have, we have an opportunity to show how big God really is, to show how big His love is, how powerful He is. How, I mean, do you understand? God knew all this was going to happen. He wasn't surprised. When the Supreme Court ruled like they ruled, God didn't go, oh my goodness, I never saw that coming. <laughs> he didn't turn to Jesus and go, what are we going to do? No, He knew it was coming before it ever happened. And He's not concerned about it because... He was ready for it, and he equipped us already to be able to stand in the midst of it. He gave us the opportunity to respond. And he may have been the opportunity was, okay, now we're going to wake up. Now we're, the church is going to be persecuted for righteousness, and now we're going to see my glory being shown. And then we also, when we, you know, we entrust ourselves to other people, um, I've talked about that, but we also need to understand if somebody slanders us, we need to approach them privately. Um, here, here's what I've learned. And, and this is what Jesus says. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you want a brother. But here's, here's what I've pretty much come to conclude. Um, if we truly want to win a brother who is accusing us, the way to win a brother is to go in private and sit down and talk to him. If we want to win an argument, then we deal with the brother in front of everybody else. So you have to decide what's more important. Winning a brother or winning an argument. And Jesus says, you want to win a brother. So you want to do it in private. You want to go and say, look, it, I know my, my conversation with the superintendent of schools, we went, he had lunch catered at his office, and we went into a small conference room, it was just the two of us. That was the conversation. We left the room, nobody else knew about the conversation. The emails we wrote back and forth, the, the subsequent conversation we had, it was always in private. And it was never about, you know, um, you're wrong, I'm right. It was always about, this is how Jesus sees it. This is what the Bible says. So how are we going to navigate how to live our life, loving somebody who we love so deeply, but loving Jesus more? How do we navigate that out? And so by doing that in private, even though he's continued in that lifestyle, I would say that we are friends. I would say that there's a crisis that, that he would call me and ask me to pray for. Um, you know, as far as his relation to Christ and, and what he's accepting and rejecting, that's his deal, not mine. I, I can't change him. Uh, he's, he's responsible for his own, his own ideas, his own. And then Jesus says this, if both parties operate with accusation, actually Paul says this, seeking to win an argument, they both lose. He says it this way, if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one. So he says, if, if you want to win an argument, you just want to fight, when it's all said and done, you both lose. 
So we're going to pay the full debt for unresolved anger in, in us toward those who slander us. Jesus tells us to agree with our adversary um, while you're on the way, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. And so if we want to walk in liberation, we need to find a place. And understand your agreement is not saying we accept what it is. It, it's the opposite of the spirit of anger. It is a heart that is healed because we are loving regardless. And so we can't forget. I've been saying this for the past five weeks. We cannot forget what is happening now. Jesus said it was going to happen. So what is happening now is part of the sign that this is the generation of the Lord's return. And again, we said generation. We're not talking days, weeks, months, years. We're talking a generation, and the generation of Scripture was 40, 70, or 100 years. So sometimes in that span, by what Scripture says, by what prophecy says, we can be certain that we're in the generation. In fact, Jesus said, those in that generation would know. They can't stick their head in the sand. They will know. They look at the signs. They'll lift their heads up. They will know they're that generation. Well, when we look at the signs of Matthew 24, we know we're that generation. Everything that Jesus said would happen is happening right now at this time in this hour. So what is on the horizon for us? Um, I, I read a, a statement by Franklin Graham. Um, he said a couple of months ago. Um, he, was being he was being interviewed um, on uh, Fox and Friends. And this is what he said. I believe we're going to see persecution in this country. We've already seen many laws that have been passed that restrict our freedom as Christians. I believe it's going to get worse as we see the influence of Washington by those who represent the gay agenda and the Islamic faith. We do have a problem in this country, and we are losing our religious freedom, and we're losing it a little bit day by day. And so we need to understand on the horizon that we will be confronted with legal obstacles. The more an agenda is pushed, the more unrighteousness and relativism is pushed in the realm of politics, the less and less rights we will have. Um, soon, churches are going to be subject to legal obstacles because of homosexuality. Um, just some of the things that will happen. And just let me say this, and I say it in the notes, but what we're talking about right now is persecution. Our brothers and sisters in Asia are going really... You think, you know, you think not being able to write your contribution off on your taxes anymore is persecution? You know, you, you think the fact that you can't have a bakery because you won't make cakes for gay weddings, you think that's persecution? You know, talk to our brothers and sisters in Syria. Ask them what persecution is. Ask to those, I mean, ISIS released three more videos this week, and, um, you know, don't go on YouTube to watch it because they show you the whole thing. I mean, they don't hold anything back. But you watch them put guys in a cage and drown them. These are Christians. When you watch it, a line of 15 men, they took explosives that was a rope about this big. They took and wrapped the rope around the heads, around the necks, all the way down. Pushed the detonator, and on the video, you just see heads fly off. And this is because they're Christians. Not because they're standing against Islam, not because it's because they're Christians. So let's don't go to our brothers and sisters in the Middle East and go, oh my goodness, you know, they're telling us that they're going to shut the doors to our church, you know, if we don't allow homosexuals on staff. That is not persecution. Our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan and Bhutan and India and Syria and Jordan, they know what persecution is when they stand for they know what it means to stand for Jesus. But what we're going to begin to see happen here is 
you know, there'd be limit on what churches can do. We may not be able to meet in public buildings. And even so, I mean, in Arizona, uh, there was a, a man who was thrown in jail because he had a house church. Because the number of cars out in front of his house exceeded the parking that was allowed in the neighborhood. And so they had a choice. You know, shut down the house church or we're going to arrest the homeowner. So they arrested the homeowner. That's, and they'll, they'll begin to do things that they don't want people to assemble the name of Christ. Lawsuits in churches are coming. If you won't dedicate the babies of gay couples, you know, quite frankly, if a gay couple's adopted a baby and they come to me and said dedicate, I'd say, okay, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do when I dedicate your baby. I'm going to talk about what the Bible says about homosexuality. I'm going to talk about how this baby needs to be raised by a husband and a wife brought up in a godly family to know Jesus. So if you want me to dedicate your baby, I'll gladly do it, but I just want you to know what I'm going to say. Because that's exactly what I'd say at a dedication for a baby whose parents weren't of the same sex. See, we can't back down. We can't say, oh, no, no, no. I'm not going to bake a cake for you. We can say, you know what? Let, let me tell you. Let, let me tell you about this cake. You know, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you that we're going to pray over this cake, and we're going to anoint it in oil, and we're going to pray that the Holy Spirit will fall on your way. <laughs> we're going to pray that people will be convicted of sin. So if you want us to bake a cake, just know that that's what's going to come with your cake. He's saying I won't bake a cake. What does that really accomplish? I don't think we're embracing anything. I mean, if they want to perform the wedding, that's a different thing. I won't do that. You know, if they want me to, you know, do something that's going to violate Scripture, I will never, ever violate Scripture. I will never compromise my faith. But we need to see these things that when we stand for righteousness, <coughs> we need to stand in such a way to where that the love of Christ breaks through, and we just don't look like knuckleheads. So we need to understand, lawsuits are coming, churches have refused to do this, like Boy Scouts have already said. Um, I mean, because look what's coming. Most Boy Scout troops meet in churches. Boy Scouts of America has now determined that Boy Scout leaders can be gay. So now churches are going to have to decide if they want Boy Scouts to meet in their church with a gay leader. So, um, in fact, I got a letter this week from legal counsel out of uh, Jay Sekulow's group and for the American Family Values, just saying, churches, we are advising you to change your bylaws. There's certain things to say on how you do marriage um, between a man and a woman, how a marriage ceremony is to be a worship ceremony, and all marriage ceremonies must include this scripture and must have these types of prayers, and make that a part of your bylaws, and because it's a part of your bylaws, can say, look, if we have to operate within this, this is how our 501c3 is recognized. So if you want us to do that, then you're going to let us preach the gospel. You're going to let us do this, this, and this. You're not going to have the kind of wedding you want. You're going to have the kind of wedding we do here. And so they're saying those are the types of things you, you need to do. Um, and so we'll have to look at that, examine that, pray about that. So um, <clears throat> just all that is on the horizon, but let's, let's wrap this up with how should we respond last page. First of all, we should be thankful for persecution. Jesus said, he says rejoice. In the midst of persecution, in Matthew 5, blessed are you when men persecute you, revile you, say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be glad. For so they persecuted the prophets before you. 
So we need to understand the reason we rejoice in persecution. We don't. It's not like we're Jehovah's Witnesses and we go, you know, in the watchtower and we say somebody slammed their faith the door in my face today while I was doing works, and so I'm rejoicing in that. You don't rejoice in the persecution. You rejoice and be glad because your righteousness is standing, and people are rejecting righteousness because you're standing for Christ. Our rejoicing is not the persecution. Our rejoicing is why we're persecuted. Jesus says, "Rejoice and be glad," because they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You want to know how the prophets are persecuted? Read Jeremiah. Read what they did to him as a prophet who spoke on behalf of the Lord. Every time he said something they didn't want to hear, they went and looked for a prophet who would say what they wanted to hear. They say, well, either we can listen to Jeremiah or we can listen to this guy. We're choosing this guy. You know, in fact, it's, I, I always, I just love some of the irony in Scripture. Read Jeremiah. When Babylon does come in and, and captures Jerusalem and captures the king who's trying to sneak out, I mean, he has an escape route and they get captured anyway. And when they come in there, they find Jeremiah in prison and they say, Are you Jeremiah? Are you want to prophesy? that Babylon would come and overthrow Israel? And Jeremiah says, yes, I am. They said, you can go. They let him out of prison and let him go. So when they captured the king, uh, um, Nebuchadnezzar says to the king, so, uh, did God prophesy anything? You know? And the king says, yeah. Um, he said that uh, um, I would not, you would kill me. And so the king says, okay. He brought his sons up killed his sons in front of him, and after he killed his sons, he grabs his eyes out, turned his eyes out, and says, you're right, but the last thing you're ever going to remember as you see is me killing your sons. So even in the midst of that, this guy who says, yeah, there's a prophecy, you're not going to kill me. See, and so we need to understand, rejoice and be glad for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We need to understand, we don't rejoice in the fact that, oh, praise God, somebody slugged me today because I told him Jesus loved him. Rejoice because God loved me so much that I'll, if they slugged me again, I'm cool. Because I just wanted to know how much you love me. And so we need to need to be thankful for persecution. We need to realize also, this, let me say this one thing. We can't have a fatalist point of view. We can't become apolitical in the midst of a nation that's politicized. In other words, we have an opportunity to come out next year to vote for a president. We can't as Christians go on, what's the use? We're with the Bible. We already know what the end is. This isn't going to change anything. So let's just not vote and let's just make it happen faster. I mean, what difference is it going to make? The difference it makes is that the Bible tells us, you know, that God is the one who puts kings in position. And in our country, the way God puts kings in position is through our votes. So God is going to use us to put those in position who he wants. God doesn't care if they're Democrat or Republican. What he cares about is his agenda and what's going to happen. So we can't say, I'm not involved in politics at all. No, we, we have to do the part that we're invited to do and that we're allowed to do, the freedoms that we have. Let me tell you, the church in China right now would be able to love to vote for a leader. The church in China right now, if they catch your church, they burn the building down and they throw the, the, the pastor in prison or they kill him and his family. That's persecution. The church in India, if the police come to your church in India, you know that that's the end of that building, that's the end of you know, if the police come here, it's because they're going to give you a citation. So we need to understand that we need to be thankful. We need, we need to, to vote. We need to see this as an opportunity to reach out to people. 
to have conversation. Don't run away from the conversation. I find the reason most Christians run away from the conversation because they don't know their Bible. They don't know how to make a defense for the gospel. They're afraid they're going to lose the argument and look funny, so not losing the argument, the best way is to avoid it. But that's not what Jesus says. He says, go ahead and stand for righteousness. If they reject it, if you stand for righteousness, don't worry about it. But we have to stand. We have to give a defense. We, have, we can't worry about what's coming. In fact, Jesus says this, don't worry about how or what you should speak. He says, for you will be given what to say at the hour because you are not speaking, but the spirit of your father is speaking through you. What? Memorize that verse. Jesus says, don't ever be afraid to speak because if you're prayed up when you go in, it's not going to be you talking anyway. It's going to be the spirit of your father speaking through you. Amen. Amen. He's a much better orator than you are. Amen. We love our enemies. Loving them includes blessing them, doing good to them, praying for them. You know, loving people who hate us, you know, doesn't mean to love them that we're supposed to fix them. That's not what we're called to do. We're not called to fix anybody. We're called to love them, to pray for them, to serve them, that they would be compelled by love to come to love. We can overcome evil by doing good to our enemies. Again, Paul says, bless those who persecute you. Bless, do not curse. Do not avenge yourself. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you heap coals of fire in his head. Do not overcome, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The, the other um, gentleman who's gay, who is an attorney, who's on the school board, the first time I met him, um, the city asked me to, to start a hate crime task force because we had a high level of hate crimes in Azusa and they were um, Azusa 13 Mexican gang killing blacks in Azusa and so put together and they invited this man to come so as I went up and I put my hand out to introduce him because I just want you to know something I don't know who you are he said I want you to know that I'm gay and I totally disagree with everything you believe <laughs> that's the first thing this man ever said to me and we have been friends now for about 15-16 years he's still in our city um, when I became the head of the Human Relations Commission, um, he kept going, saying, I don't think we should have a pastor as the head of the Human Relations Commission. And after I was the head for six years, they finally came and said, we think you need to step down. Uh, so I stepped down, and guess who became the head of the Human Relations Commission? But that's okay. You know, so um, he's never listened to me. I don't listen to him. We have discussion. We say hi, we pass back and forth, but um, he's one that I have a responsibility every time I see him, I pray for him, and I see him almost every day. So those are our responsibilities, to not walk away from the conversation, but to have the conversation, but to always have it in love. So bless those who curse you, we're to go beyond refusing to answer their insult with an insult. Do good to those who hate you, we're to look for practical ways to do good for them. Pray for those who use a persecution. We're to pray for an enemy uh, increases our love. The more we pray, the more our love grows. And finally, Jesus prayed for his enemies as they were killing him. Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. So what's, what's this all about? We are in a day and an hour where we're going to be slandered. 
We need to be able to stand for righteousness. We need to know it's coming, but we need to be lovers. Lovers of God and lovers of people. The great command says to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbors ourselves. That is the heart of everything we do. If we're motivated by anything but love, we have the wrong motivation. We cannot be motivated by faith. We cannot be motivated by Christianity. We can't be motivated by church. We can't be motivated by, you know, the Bible. We need to be motivated by love and let all of those flow through love. Because again, people who just use the Bible to clobber people over the head, the message isn't getting out. All it's doing is hardening hearts. So we need to make sure that we stand in love as we stand for righteousness. And don't be surprised when you stand in love if you're slandered. Jesus promised it would happen. He said you should run to it. You need to want it to happen. Because that is what's going to bring perseverance in your life. That's what's going to develop godly character in your life. That's what's going to bring hope in your life is persecution. And so we need to know it's coming. We need to be prepared for it. And we need to be willing to stand and not worry about what if it doesn't go well. But just be obedient to what God says. And can I just say something? If you say the wrong thing at the wrong time, get another chance. You know, it's better to say something and have to go back and say, I'm sorry I was wrong than to not say anything at all. But if you're always motivated by love, you're pretty much going to be right most of the time. So Father, we thank you today. You've been talking to us about love. We didn't sit down around a table and say, okay, how can we make this a love fest today? You just said, hey, you're here, I love you, I'm going to let you know I love you. And just know because I love you, you're going to be persecuted. So God, we just ask that we'll be able to stand in the state of the cell. We ask God that we will not shrink back. Whether we're in school, whether we're at work, God, whether we're just in the grocery store, that every place we go, if we stand for righteousness, people are either going to be drawn to us because of love, or they're going to be repelled by us because of love. Either way, we know in the end, love wins. And that's what we want to be known for, is love. So I ask in Jesus' name, set your seal upon our heart, O Father, with love that is stronger than death, that is a fire that many waters cannot quench. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so don't forget Saturday, I'll send emails out again. You should have already got emails, I'll send out again. Reminding you this Saturday is uh, healing and deliverance. The next Saturday is uh, prophecy. We invited other houses of prayer to come. So I just encourage you to come. And there is no chocolate. Just like that. We know up front. So. Alright. It'll be here. It'll be here. In this room. Yes, Jansen.